0: We choose to be active learners, um, to learn from the word and to learn from the words of Jesus. So um, let's just position our hearts and our minds. It's, you know, it's very much about our minds as well, isn't it, this morning. Let's just position our hearts and minds to be um, wholehearted followers of Jesus this morning and to be, to stir our hunger and our thirst. for knowledge, but also for a depth of relationship with God. For an understanding that we don't have now, that we want to have by the end of today, that we grow and we, um, we expand our hearts and minds, and that we are um, changed from glory to glory. We are glorious, but we've, there's more glory to come, and we wanna, we wanna know what God has to say to us this morning.
1: Father
0: God. Father God, we thank you for your word. The more we read it and the more we, um, we devour it, God, we, we enjoy it more. It tastes sweeter. And also our minds are more um, baffled by the mysteries that it holds. But there's something so beautiful about your word, God, that is um, really precious to us. And uh, this morning, God, we want to know, um, again, what you you want us to hear today, what you want us to be, how you want us to be refined, how you want us to be um, more like you. Father God, help us to have really soft hearts to your word today and hearts that are receptive to you, but also, God, in our minds. Help us, God, in this weird um, environment that we find ourselves in. Help us to concentrate. Help us to focus, God. Help us to and really reach into the words that you, that you want to put into our hearts and minds today, God. We are open, God, to you this morning. We are open for you to change us and for you to refine us, God. Help us, Father, to be um, hungry for your word this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen. 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 I don't know if we have the words, but... um,
2: It is just possible that Kate Gibbons might zoom in as well. Okay, great.
1: Um,
0: We're going to hand over this morning. If I just tell you the outline... And we're talking about money and wealth this morning. And we're going to start with Rosemary, um, who's I was going to say Rosemary Pritchard, but you know who Rosemary is. <laughs> Rosemary, um, who's going to talk to us um, about stewardship and what that means in terms of our walk with God. And um, we've then managed to get hold of Tim Keller, who's from New York, and he's going to be sharing this morning, which is fantastic. We're so glad to have him with us followed by Christy, um, Christy's going to speak to us just for a, a short time after that. Then we hand over to the Riddles who will um, bring us some practical um, questions and input, and we will go to our house churches um, to have those conversations. So that's Rosemary, Tim Keller, and Christy. What a platform, what a platform. <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: and Rosemary, over to you. Thank you. Okay, hi, everyone. Can, can you... Is that sound good? Yes. Great. Um, so, so, yeah, stewardship. Um, in, the, in, in biblical culture, um, the, the steward was uh, somebody in the household, a household servant normally, who managed the household affairs on behalf of the head of the family. And managing the family involved um, all kinds of things, um, but most importantly, accountability to the head of the household. Um, But um, the steward was given a huge responsibility, but always holding that responsibility in trust and uh, and in accountability to the head of the household. Um, usually the father and sometimes um, the mother um, now if i think about uh, if I think about um stewardship um, I, you have to start in genesis um, but rather than starting in genesis one um, genesis two and genesis two fifteen says the Lord God uh, put uh, put the man in the garden to tend and watch over it so responsibility entrusted in this collaboration between humanity and god Uh, amazing collaboration amazing responsibility entrusted to us Um, i'm now going to attempt to show you my screen except uh, I need to do that first it's, it's very weird when I look away at my screen um, and
1: um, yeah here we go no it's
2: not there we're coming to that. Yeah, it's here, it's here. Yeah, it's here, but it's not the right one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: right. I think we're there. Chapter 2 of Genesis. Can you see that?
1: No. Matthew 6.
2: Ah, you should have Chapter 2 of Genesis. Um, huh. That's because I'm sharing the wrong, I'm trying to share PowerPoint and I'm sharing media. Um, um, Just close
1: it and open it again.
2: Okay. Uh, Sorry. Sorry. screen Are we there? Yep. Great. So chapter two of Genesis opens up for us a picture of mankind as the estate manager, steward as the estate manager, cultivating and protecting God's garden. So it is as God's representatives. Estate manager, representative. And in the light of God's creativity, that we are to have dominion. It cannot therefore be a lordly and exploitative dominion, but a responsible stewardship, a facilitating servanthood, which recognizes that all things come from God's hands. If we're stewards, it acknowledges that we've received what we have from god it's been put into our hands in trust estate manager rep there's a there's a hymn tune called stewardship which um i thought of as i was um as i was preparing and i thought to myself ah now that hymn's called god in his love for us gave us this planet but actually i got it wrong because look god in his love for us lent us this planet um we have this this sacred trust for a time. And um, there's a reminder in this hymn, and I won't won't dwell on it, but there's a reminder on this hymn that the whole of the planet has been entrusted to humanity uh, for us to tend responsibly. And the final verse says, Earth is the Lord's, it is ours to enjoy it ours to enjoy it for the time it's entrusted to us um ours as god's steward to farm and defend from its pollution misuse and destruction good lord deliver us world without end so there's a a huge sense in which stewardship is um uh, a, a responsibility for tending the whole of creation so um Emma Biddle, you're doing a great thing in uh, (laughs) challenging us about our responsible uh, use of the whole planet and getting our eyes out of of me and my small corner to um, to the whole global situation. But we also need to attend to our own small scale responsibility for what we've been given um it's amazing though the earth is the lord's and everything in it the earth is the lord's and everything in it anything i have i'm the i'm this i'm the tenant i'm the i am this i am the tenant i am the i am the um the, uh, i'm the i'm the undergardener to god uh, because it belongs to him it's not mine So on the one hand, the steward in New Testament times is a a servant. He's often a slave um, and he is strictly accountable to his master. On the other hand, he's given an exceptional range of freedom, one bearing high responsibility. And in the Old Testament, it's Joseph who's that picture of stewardship. You know, things are entrusted to him, first in Potiphar's household. And then, hey, we've got uh, Catherine Gibson waiting to come in. Who who admits? Yeah. Sally?
3: No, I, I'll sort it out.
2: Yeah, great. And so Joseph, first of all, in Potiphar's household. And remember how Joseph knew um, that he had to resist the temptation uh, that was being offered to him because he was he was the steward he he it wasn't his household mrs potiphar was not his wife she was not his to have there were there were boundaries and then um joseph having been um responsible in one household is then upgraded to responsibility over the whole of egypt and um everything almost everything is put into his hands but he still knows that he has accountability to Pharaoh. And um, he does uh, wonderful, wonderful things. He saves thousands of lives through the way that he wisely uses his responsibility. He is a wonderful picture of a good steward. And he knew that being accountable, he could be judged severely for the misuse of the trust placed in him so he didn't fall into that temptation with Mrs Potiphar uh, but this presupposes the honor of the office he has uh, very interesting in the um, notes Sally sent me from the, the book Simpl- simplicity um what's it called Sally simplicity Love and justice and justice, yeah. Um, quote from John Wesley. John Wesley has um, a series of standard sermons. This is Sermon 51. And John Wesley is talking about who we are. And there's a sense in which we're debtors always to God. Um, and there's, there's always a limitation in language. You can never push these images to the ultimate. So there is a sense in which we're debtors to god Um, but he's looking in this particular um, sermon and we're looking this morning at what it is to be a steward so john wesley says we're now indebted to god for all we have and here's an interesting point a debtor has a, a duty to pay back what he's received but it's not until the deadline comes so if, if the bank makes you a loan um, for the time that you have that money, you use that money uh, for your own purposes. Um, but, you know, the day of reckoning is coming and you're going to have to repay. But in the time as a debtor, in the time when you use the money, you have a sense of freedom within the boundary of repaying. Um, but Wesley reminds us it's not like that as being a steward. So we're not free to use um, randomly whatever's been put into our hands. Um, but we're always under instruction, we're always doing it as our master pleases. We're always accountable to the head of the household. He's no right to dispose of anything which is not in her or his uh, which is in her or his um, hands. But according, only according to uh, the the will of her or his lord. He's not the proprietor. We're not the owners of what we have. But we're entrusted with them by another, and we're entrusted under the express conditions that we shall dispose of everything according as our master orders. I, I find it very um very moving. My, my dad's attitude to his land. My dad inherited a farm. Um, my dad will leave the land to, to, to us, the next generation. And he, he's had this sense that he is, uh, he received it and he passes it on. Um, it's not there for him to exploit and be selfish about. Um my dad's not the kind of person to want to go on a cruise, but my dad could have sold his, sold his land for a, a six figure six figure sum and um, <laughs> I was going to say mate hey <laughs> um he could have sold his land for a six figure sum and been selfish about it, but there was no way he was ever going to do that. He received um interest to be passed on to the next generation um, and my dad who does not um honor god still has that sense of stewardship i wonder if we always do i wonder if we always if i always know that what i've been given um, it's not for selfish purposes it's to listen always attentively to what god wants Um, King David, um, when he'd assembled all the riches that were going to be used in the temple, um, this, this famous declaration, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? And acknowledging God, everything comes from you. And I... I have given you only what comes from your hand. Everything that's in our hands has been entrusted to us from God. Uh, And that's all kinds of everything. It could be an inheritance, like my dad had, of his property. It could be the gifts and skills that God has given us. Um, And as we look around our community, there's there's, um, such a richness of uh, skills and competences and graces, um, many of which enable different members of the community um, to uh, earn decent salaries in um, the right conditions and so provide well for their families. But there's a real sense in which even what is by our own, uh, even when we, we do value added, with our own um, labor whether that's on the allotment or in the IT, cutting hair, um, organizing a business with great enterprise um, and good management. All the value added that we use our skills from uh, is still that collaboration that God intended when he sent Adam into the garden to tend it and to take care of it on his behalf. So the question is, who am I? And whose am I? Who am I? I'm a child of God and I'm a steward. Maybe maybe Prince Charles knows a bit about that. (laughs) He's born into the royal line, but he's also waiting his time. He's got responsibility to uh, Her Majesty. Whose am I? I belong to God, so what I have, I receive thankfully, I hold in open hands freely, I have received freely, I give, and we come to the famous passage in Matthew that you can all quote, "I tell you, do not worry about your life. what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear is not life, more than clothes that more than I can't even see my screen it's not life more than food and the body more than clothes because um we've re- we've received and part of stewardship is trusting that we go on receiving um giving and sharing is trusting that the god who gave yesterday is faithful today the god who gave Uh, in the past uh, is faithful in the future we will have enough so seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you Uh, as i come into land um there's uh there's a very powerful verse in romans that says for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and here am i in the middle i'm a channel receiving from him because of who he is because of his power as creator as sustainer as savior the power of his holy spirit it comes through him and what i have uh, the choices I make in my life are for Him and to Him, and to Him be glory forever. Now, the the slide I found actually tells you that's from Romans eleven thirty six. Um, I, I, I I wasn't going to disclose what the what the verse was because um, I, 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 I I won't embarrass you. But the very next verse, I'm sure everyone can quote. The very next verse is I appeal to you therefore brothers and sisters by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Um, There's a sense in which the verse on the screen is summing up um, all that Paul said so far. Everything we have as David said everything I have comes from you. Um, So as God's steward uh, I'm I'm the channel. I'm the I'm the middleman. I'm the rep. I'm the estate manager. Um, re- responsibly and accountably, using all the goodness that God has given. Um, and many of us are following Lexio three six five. And it struck me again this morning, this prayer that often they use on a Sabbath, on a Sunday. Um, And this is not the whole of it, but may God's image in me be restored. And my imagination in God be restored. May the gravity of material things be lightened. I've got a boss to go to, to, uh, to give me instructions. Um I do have a high responsibility, um, but I'm getting the help that I need in uh, responsibly stewarding that if I'm listening, and may I know grace to embrace my own finite smallness in the arms of God's infinite greatness, and may God's word feed me and His spirit lead me in the week and into the life to come. Amen. 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 And now, please listen carefully to, t- to Tim Keller. Thank you, Rosemary. Can
4: you just un- share your screen? Un- yeah.
2: yep.
1: Just send me a chat message if you have a problem with any volume.
5: Let's uh, look at this passage uh, to which our uh, our thoughts have to be uh, focused, and uh, we're going to see uh, Matthew 19:16 to 25. It's printed in your bulletin. We're going to read that and base our teaching on it. Matthew 19:16 to 25. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, "Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life?" Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved. This is God's Word. Uh, This is the very famous story of the rich young ruler, rich young man, and he was rich in two ways. He had both great moral wealth and great financial wealth. You notice? First of all, he has great moral wealth. He's a very decent person, a person characterized by moral excellence. So you see, when Jesus actually enumerates many of the Ten Commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself, he says... Bingo! <laughs> I do that, and so and let's assume that he was he was uh, certainly telling the truth, and that anyone who knew him would say that yes, here is a man characterized by moral excellence. Here is a man who's characterized by sexual purity. He's a loving son. He's a great citizen. He's in, a man of integrity and honesty. Let's just assume that this, this is true. Not only that, we're, we're told he was wealthy. He had many possessions back then, as well as now. There's a kind of unconscious, and sometimes conscious, feeling that those two things go together. That if you do good, you'll do well. And if you've done well, it's because you did good. And remember when uh, Maria in Sound of Music, the main character in Sound of Music, is about to marry a rich guy. She realizes she's gonna marry a rich guy. So she sings a song. And she says, somewhere in my youth or childhood, remember, I must have done something good, see? I must, I must be a pretty good person or I, God wouldn't be rewarding me like this. And of course, this is the reverse of what Job's friends sung. When Job fell into poverty and disease, they essentially said, somewhere in your youth or childhood, you must have done something bad. They say, it must be something wrong. And there's a feeling, kind of a, it's hard to describe and nobody wants to articulate it, a feeling that if you, if you live a good life, then God will reward you by giving you a certain amount of prosperity. And, and so, in a sense, you're characterized by moral excellence obviously rewarded by God by being given a prosperous life and so as he approaches Jesus it seems like here is the ideal person that any religious leader any religious leader you can imagine would say this is the kind of guy I'm looking for this is the kind of person I want not only is he a man characterized by moral excellence not only is he a man whose life is very together in all sorts of ways but he's even willing to admit there's something he lacks I mean, this is great to have a rich person who's willing to come to church and to say, I'm still missing something. He's real pulled together in every way. He's got it all together. But even, he's so together, he even admits that I don't have it all together. Yes, I still lack something. So he comes to Jesus, and Jesus speaks strongly to him and sends him packing. Here's the kind of guy that, by modern standards, everybody would say, this is about as together a person as as a, a person can be and he's even willing to admit he has a spiritual need, and he he comes and asks a perfectly legitimate question, what do I still lack? There's still something missing in my life spiritually. What do I lack? And Jesus gives him an outrageous, strong answer, sends him away packing, shows him that he's totally outside the kingdom of God. And when the disciples see it, they're absolutely astonished, and they say, wait a minute, if he's out, who in the world is in? But this is to teach us that Christianity is utterly and entirely different than anything the human mind, the natural human mind can conceive of or think. And what's so alarming is that most of us are gonna be in the very same boat. Even those of us who are able to somehow pull our lives together like he did, get ourselves sort of morally together, self-discipline, self-control, economically together, career-wise together, And there's plenty of people in New York who are like that and who still are willing to admit, I need something, but obviously it's possible to have all that, even the humility to ask, even the humility to come and seek and be sent packing by Jesus. Why did he go away? It says sad, and that's kind of a weak word. I I think the better translation is grieved. He went away grieved. That's how the old translations do it. How can we avoid going away grieved. This man had set out on a course of his life that looked like he had made every bit of it. He was just lacking one thing. He wasn't sure what it is. I mean, he had put his career together. He had built the steps up the mountain, and he was almost at to the top, and he just, when he got to the top, he realized, you know, I've almost made it. If there was just one more step, I can't quite reach the top. So he turns to Jesus and says, I just need that one more step. Jesus tells him he's on a completely wrong road. That he's far from the kingdom. How are we gonna avoid being sent away by Jesus grieving? In fact, I know, and there's a great thing about Redeemer, there's, there are dozens of you right now, probably in similar situation, oh, maybe not rich and maybe not this together, but you're here saying, what do I lack? There's a danger that you could be sent away grieving why was it he sent away grieving? Why was it? Why did he go away like that? I would say, unless we understand those, the four reasons I see, we might be in danger of being sent away the same way. And so let's take a look. There's four reasons. Each one is more serious than the last. Four reasons that he went away grieving. The first reason is, let me just lay these out and each one is more serious therefore uh, each one takes a little bit more thought the first one is he went away grieving because he talked to the real Jesus now I won't take long on this point but I think you need to I need to say this one of the reasons why he was disturbed it was because he was talking to the real Jesus and he was hearing the real message of Jesus when you talk to the real Jesus you're always shocked When you come up against his real message, you're always disturbed. You're always disturbed. In fact, I'll go this far. Even this is the way you grow as a Christian. When you meet the real message of the gospel, you always find, always find, two things that are shocking. It demands more than you thought, and it offers more than you thought. It, requi- it, it, it when you meet the real Jesus, you'll find he wants much more from you than you ever thought, and he offers far more to you than you ever dreamed. And frankly, that's what it means to grow. The way you grow as a Christian, the way you know you've grown is that a year ago, no matter how long you've been a Christian, you're growing, if a year ago, you were much more ignorant about these two things. Today, you see far more of what he's requiring. He requires a lot more than you ever thought, but he offers far more than you ever imagined. That's what it means to be dealing with the real Jesus. And you see, whenever you actually do come against, up against the real Jesus, what always happens, you see that and then you can only have one of two responses. You can either bow down in wonder and give yourself to him or you go away offended, one or the other. Now, if you go away offended, there's hope because you could always think about it. At least you've seen the truth and you might come back but the one thing it's impossible is to have met the real Jesus and to be indifferent and if there's anybody here who is experiences one of the forms of indifference in other words if you find christianity laughable irrelevant boring or if you find christianity to be just a kind of sweet comforting thing that it's it's nice to dip into occasionally or if you find christianity kind of vaguely guilt-producing and kind of vaguely anxiety-ridden you haven't seen the real Jesus because you are in the grip of indifference. Whenever you meet the real Jesus, he disturbs you and that's the first reason he was disturbed. Secondly, the second reason he was dis- uh, that he went away grieving was that Jesus smashed two of his basic assumptions about how religion works. He sma- Jesus smashed his religious views. Now, what's really instructive for us is that the religious views that this young man had are not just common in his day, but they're absolutely common today. You see, he came knowing that he was lacking something. He, he needed some kind of spiritual experience, at least. He wasn't sure about his relationship with God. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't think he meant he didn't know that he had it. I think it meant he wasn't sure he had it he wasn't sure about his relationship with God, and he lacked a certain kind of peace in the center. So he comes and he asks. And you see, the way he approaches it is based on two assumptions. The way he looks for this peace, it it may seem honest, you know, when you first look at it, it seems like he's very sincere, but the fact of the matter is, he is approaching God on the basis of two assumptions that Jesus utterly smashes, and those two assumptions are that Christianity is something you can add and Christianity is something you can do. Christianity is something you can add and you can do. First of all, people assume, he assumed, that Christianity was something you can just add to your life, a kind of way of sort of furnishing your life out, filling your life out. You know, it's like uh, it's like you're listening. Now, let's just say you're a conductor and you're listening to the, the music and you say, you know, there's, this, there's, a, there's a, one of the... One of the uh, one of the notes isn't coming out, you see, one of, the, one of the lines, I can't hear it. And a lot of people say, that's what I need. I've had a pretty good life. I need to sort of round myself out. I need to add something. So he says, what do I still lack? He goes to Jesus and says, what can I add? But Jesus' response, as we will see later, is to, is to make an outrageous request. And what he's really doing, what Jesus is really doing is saying this, Christianity is not something you add. Christianity is more like an explosion that destroys everything you have to make way for something new. Christianity isn't something you add. Christianity is starting completely afresh. Remember Nicodemus? He was also, he wasn't a rich young man, he was a rich old man, and he said, he comes to Jesus by night, John chapter three, and he says, essentially he says the same thing. He says, you're a good teacher, and I'm a ruler in Israel but I just feel like I lack something. What do I still lack? And Jesus goes, boom, you must be born again. You must be completely redone. Everything has to be smashed. Young man, he's saying, you don't need one more rung to get over the top of the mountain. What I have revolutionizes everything. What I have smashes through the mountain. It's a whole new approach. And so what really Jesus is saying is, utterly Christianity is not something you add. It's something that completely revolutionizes, but then the other assumption, you can't just bring Jesus Christ in as an addition. He doesn't just furnish you out. He's not another book on your shelf, okay? He's not another file on your hard drive you know, that just somehow gives you more power. You know, he's, 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 not, he's not something you just add and say, wow, look how much more powerful my program is now. Oh no, oh no. He's a whole new program. He doesn't just add and boot up your program. But then the second thing that the young man does is he thinks that Christianity is something you do. He says, what good thing should I do? And Jesus, again, is absolutely blunt. He says, there's only one good. And in a minute, we'll see, he also asks the man to do something that is utterly impossible. In other words, Jesus Christ says, I want you to know that it's, be, getting to God is not a matter of goodness. Nobody can be good enough. Nobody can be moral enough. And then look at the furious logic. He says, take all of your wealth, O oh rich man, and sell it all and give it to the poor and follow me. What is he doing? It's brilliant. He says, oh, you, you obey all the Ten Commandments, do you? Well, let's just start with the first one. Let's just take the first one. The uh-huh. first one is, you see, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Have no other gods before me. All right, he says, let's try that one out. I want you to sell all of your money just because I, Jesus Christ, the Lord, say so. How are you doing? He says, you see, if God is really first in your life, everything and anything else is trivial compared to God everything and anything else is a bauble see it's a trinket nothing is compared to his cause nothing is compared to his heart nothing do you have any other guys before you before him how does your heart work you see what is he doing he's saying my dear friend nobody loves God with all their heart soul strength and mind nobody loves their neighbor as themselves don't you see your problem oh rich young man is not that you need a little more goodness your problem is you won't admit what you know down deep that you're not good And I I can almost hear Jesus saying this. He's saying, the reason you come to me is because you know at some level that you're not good. Look at a, take a look at a needle. Just get some sewing needle and look at it with a naked eye and it looks perfect. Stainless, pure, spotless, brilliant, bright. But look at it under a microscope and it's all pocked and misshapen. Now anybody who gets close enough into a heart will see the same thing. Uh, when I was a young minister years ago, I made a terrible mistake. Very often I would do funerals, and I very often did funerals for fine Christian men or women. And from what I can tell, you know, from my naked, you might say the naked eye, uh, when I looked at them from where I could see them, they looked just about perfect. They were wonderful men and women of God. So I would do these these glowing funeral sermons. I about mean, how great this person was, and the self-control, and the love, and the nobility, and the wisdom. I would watch the family, you know, squirm in their seats, why? Because if you look close enough at any heart, any human heart, it's all misshapen. It's all pocked. And the rich young man knew that. He wouldn't admit it to himself. Jesus is trying to break on through. No one is good. You think Christianity is something you add? No, it's a revolution. You think Christianity is something you do? No. It's something you receive. And so you've got to move on here, but let me put it to you this way. Every other religion in the world, every other philosophy in the world, and every, actually, even so-called common sense divides all humanity like this, like this, see it? Up here's the good, down here's the bad. Hmm? Up here's the moral, down here's the immoral. Hmm? Up here's the nice, down here's the nasty. Up here's the religious, maybe down here's the irreligious. Depends a little bit, but basically, everybody sees that that's the line. And Jesus comes through and says, no. The real line isn't a horizontal line, the real line's a vertical line. And he says, I want you to know that there's really two ways to God. Both nice and nasty people can do it on their own efforts or both nice and nasty people, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter how great, no matter how awful, you can come on a totally different basis. You can come on the basis, not of your efforts, but on the basis of my efforts until you see that the real line going down the center of humanity in its attitude and its stance toward God is not the horizontal but the vertical. The vertical is the real one. It cuts across the horizontal. It makes mincemeat of the horizontal on either side because no matter how good you are on this side, Jesus says, you're not. It's only relative. You're just a little less pocked and misshapen no matter how how bad you are on this side as we will see in a minute you can come in other words this young man is good relatively speaking relative to other people he's very good but it's his doctrine of goodness that's wrong and as a result he goes away grieving jesus has smashed his assumptions the assumptions that virtually everybody else has too thirdly The reason he went away grieving was when? Because he was talking to the real Jesus. Secondly, because Jesus smashed his religious assumptions. Thirdly, he went away grieving because Jesus got personal. Now, I I would suggest to you that even though Jesus has contradicted his views, that's not the real reason that he is so grieved, no. Jesus refused to stay academic. This young man is like so many people i 've seen it for years. He believes essentially his problem is an academic one. He says i 'm missing something i don 't know why i, I, I don 't know why I feel kind of like there's something wrong i 'm missing something. Is it a doctrine that I have missed or don 't understand? Is some project I ought to do that I don't know about, or is it some rule that I'm breaking that I don't know about, what is it? And he's essentially saying it's something I'm missing, something I'm missing in my thinking, and he approaches it academically, and Jesus will not have it. An awful lot of, I've seen this for years, people say, my real problem with Christianity is, I don't see how a God of love could punish people. Or you say, my real problem with Christianity is, I, I just don't like, it's so exclusive, it seems to leave out other religions. That's my problem or you might say my real problem is the whole idea of miracle I just can't believe I was a modern person in miracle or you may say oh you can even get a little less academic and you say my real problem is I have a I have a bad habit and I can't break it or I've got an issue that I just can't seem to deal with or I've got something that I'm caught in, and I don't know. I, I want to, you know, I don't know that I, I w- really want to give it up, or I don't know how to get out of it. And so you get a little bit less academic. But Jesus Christ, you see, the rich young man is like this, but he has come to Jesus Christ, who has the eye that pierces all the way through all the smoke screens, all the pretense, see, all the camouflage, all the posturing. And he, you know, in the in Mark, in Gospel of Mark, this same story is told. And Mark inserts something very important in this story. You see, you know the place where he says, what still do I lack? In the Gospel of Mark, he says, what still do I lack? And Mark says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, sell everything you've got. He looked at him and loved him. Now what's that mean? It means he wasn't just looking at his face. It means he was reading his soul like a book It means he said, I know this is going to hurt you, but I want you to know that I see the real cancer. I see the real issue. I see the real thing that's killing you. You've got to get rid of all your money. Now, the only way to understand what Jesus is doing is to put this into context. There is nobody else in the Bible who, as far as I know, who is asked to give up everything like that. Even Zacchaeus was only asked to give away half. In other words, there's no rule that says all Christians to follow Christ have got to give up everything, all their money. There's no place that says you have to sell all your money and go into complete poverty. There's no place that says that. So that means the way he's dealing with this young man is he's doing a drastic measure the way you deal with an alcoholic or a gambler. What Jesus is saying is our difficulty underneath all of our objections and underneath all our complaints, the difficulty we really have is never the difficulty we we really think at first. Everybody I know who's really gone very far into Christian life has found this out, that what we thought in the beginning was the problem really isn't. Jesus Christ comes all the way in and says, underneath it all, there is a power struggle that you have with God over your dreams. Carousel, musical, There's one place where one of the characters, Carrie Pippridge, sings a song about how she can't wait to be married and have children. That's her great dream. And, you know, she sings one of the most lyrical of all Oscar Hammerstein uh, and Rogers, all the Hammerstein-Rogers songs. She sings, when the children are asleep, we'll sit and dream. But the night she sang that song, if Jesus Christ could come down to the middle of the carousel, He'd walk over to Carrie Pippridge and he'd say, there's one thing that you lack. I want you to be willing to live a single life, all of your life for me. That's what he would do. He comes to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love and offer him up as a burnt offering. He comes to the rich young man and says, you've got to give away all of your money. What is he doing? Jesus Christ is saying, I want your dreams. There's a song that we sing in the evening service. It starts Holy Father. You know that song? Some of you do. Some of you come. And the main part of the, it's a short song, but the main part is we have to surrender all our dreams. And what Jesus Christ says is, I want the most important thing in your life. That is the running sore. That is the cancer. I want your dream. I want that through which you dream of a life of power and joy without God. I want the thing that you think will give you a life of power and joy without God. And until you have given it to me, not only we aren't right, but you don't know it. It's killing you. The Village Voice, at the end of January, there was an article that made an awful lot of, made a big flap, got a lot of publicity. And the reason it, was, it did was because it was about the fact that unsafe sex is on the rise again in big cities. And the person who wrote, the writer who wrote it, wrote as a person who had begun to get back into unsafe sex. And at one point, the writer said this. The writer said, at first I was shocked at what I was doing, quote, I recoiled so much from what I had done that it seemed to be not my choice at all. It was like a monster did it. I recoiled so much from what I had done that it seemed to me not not to be my choice at all. It was like a monster did it. But when you read through the article at the end, reflection goes on, and here's how it ends Yes, if you want to stay alive, you have to avoid wild, anonymous, spontaneous, and explosive sex. Then you have to ask, Who are you? What is life about? Now listen because I'm not picking on sex as the greatest evil just like Jesus is not picking on money as the greatest evil. I'm not using this illustration because I'm a conservative and Jesus isn't using his illustration because he's a liberal. The point is, anything that you have decided will give me a life of joy and power without God becomes a monster. It does drive you, it takes you out. Jesus looks at this and says, this is your monster. Jesus says anything, the, the reason, he, the reason he, he loves him when he says it, he says, I have to tell you this. I know it's going to hurt, but I love you. And the reason I'm telling you is this is how you think you can have a life of power and joy without God. As a result, we've got to kill this thing before it kills you. The reason your life is out of control is because you're afraid of losing control to God. He says, give it to me and let me decide how much money you're going to have. Put me first. Be willing to part with anything, anything. Change your attitude toward this. Destroy the psychological umbilical cord. Be willing to part with anything, anything. So he's saying to this man, he says, be willing to walk away from it all and let me decide how rich you're gonna be. He says to Carrie Pippridge, be willing to not be married at all. Let me decide that. He says to Abraham, be willing to, to not have any child. We think the problem's academic. We think the problem's superficial. We think the problem's behavioral. Is there's a monster at the heart, Jesus says, surrender your dreams. Money can be a monster. Money is so dangerous spiritually that even not having it can destroy you because of your envy and your desire and you you can kill yourself to get it. But the point is it's not the money or the sex or the work as such, but it's money or sex that comes before Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing. It's money or sex or work as your fondest dream, as your deepest dream. Jesus says, I want it. You know how money can do it? I've seen people who don't have money. But if money is the way that they dream of a life of perfect control, we we use money because we feel like it'll give us a life of power. We'll be in charge of our lives. We'll feel in control finally. People won't push us around. If you don't have it, the monster of money will fill you with anxiety. It will fill you with bitterness toward other people who have more than you. It'll fill you with envy. It'll always make you worry about money. It'll make you work too hard. It'll make you trample on people. It was amazing, you know, how the new talk shows are pushing people into conflict. People will pay, people will watch the talk shows that make people embarrassed and and fight, right? And when recently somebody shot somebody after a talk show, you know, the media called up, I mean, the, the newspaper media called all the talk show executives up and said, why are you still doing this? They said, because people watch it, which means because people buy it, which means, yeah, it's bad, but it makes us money. It's become a monster. Yeah, we're trampling on people, but it makes us money. And you know what, one of the worst things that can happen is when you actually get the money. When you become rich, you feel that it's because you're smart, because you're savvy, and you get very confident about your hunches, and you get very confident about your beliefs, it's become a monster. Anything will. Jesus says, yes, you lack one thing. And what is that? Here's the end. The fourth reason, see he does lack one thing, and it's not the giving away of the money. It's treasure in heaven. The, the reason that this young man has missed it all and is because fa- he doesn't understand treasure in heaven. And Jesus Christ comes and says, you have to get rid of your monster. You have to put me first, and that's the only way you'll ever get treasures in heaven. Well, what are treasures in heaven? treasures in heaven? It means these two things. I have to really be brief here. Number one, it means to see that he is your treasure in heaven. What Jesus is really saying is, I want you to give away everything. What he means is, I want you to see that if you have me and only me, you're rich. And not just rich toward people, rich toward God. He's saying, young man, I know that you have the greatest greatest estate in the district, but it's nothing compared to my forgiveness. It's nothing compared to my righteousness. It's nothing compared to being adopted into the family of the father. It's nothing compared to what I can give you. Don't you see? Thieves can steal it. Moth, can, moth and, and rust can corrupt it, but what I give you is permanent. And if you don't see that I alone am good, but that as your savior, if you rely on me, for your standing before God, you become good in me. You'll see that I'm your treasure. I'm your righteousness. I'm your record before God. And if you have that, then it changes your attitude toward everything. Money no longer is sacred. It's nothing compared to the treasure in heaven. You're free from worry. You're free from envy. You're free for generosity. But that's not it. The last thing is, if you want to understand treasure in heaven, you have to see that he is your treasure in heaven. But lastly, you have to understand that you're his treasure in heaven. Jesus says when he sends his disciples out, they come back and they, uh, they've been casting demons out. And they say, this is great, we're doing miracles. And he says, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Oh, where is their names written in heaven? Well, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that the high priest who went in before God used had the names of every one of the children of Israel engraved on precious stones over his heart when he went before God. And Jesus is our high priest. And in Isaiah forty-nine, God says to Israel, Can a woman forget the woman? Can a woman forget the baby that nurses at her breast? She may forget, but I will not forget thee. Look, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. If you put a tattoo here, you won't always see it. If you put a tattoo here, you won't always see it. If you put a tattoo here, you won't always see it. But if you put a tattoo here, what is God saying? He was saying, if you make my son your treasure, that makes you my treasure. Now when I see you, I see an absolute beauty. I see you radiant in Christ. I see you righteous in Christ. I dote on you, I gaze on you. Is that the most? exhilarating thought you can possibly have? is that, Do you live in holy consciousness of this or do you take your identity from your bank account or your dress size? Don't you see the freedom that comes? Jesus says, you will only be free if you see that with me and me alone, you're rich. And as John Newton once put it, since I have known the Savior's name and what for me he bore, no more I toil for empty fame. I thirst for gold no more. Placed by his hand in this retreat, I make his love my theme and see that all the world calls great his but a waking dream. If you come to him even though he's grieving you, you'll see he really loves you. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would teach us Not just how to be free from greed, but how to be free, period, by seeing what your son has asked us for, everything. We look at you and we say, oh Lord Jesus Christ, we thought you were a great teacher, we thought you were a great moralist, we came expecting a little additional help. We see that you have to be our surety, our mediator. You have to be our prophet, our priest, our king, our alpha, our omega. Are everything, and we ask that you would let that be the case. Thereby, we will find the freedom that comes only to those who have submitted wholly and utterly to your Son as their Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.
1: For more of.
3: Oh, thanks, Tim. Right, everyone take a breath. A lot of sitting and listening. That is good. I listened to that yesterday as well. I think Tim Keller's brilliant. I listen to him a lot. I'd encourage you all to listen to him a lot. Often you have to listen to his things twice before you can understand what he's actually said. Um, So I feel like I understand it a lot more now I've listened to it today as well. Um, I've been asked just to zoom in a little bit on that story of the, often we call it the rich young ruler. Um, you can find it in Matthew 19, Mark 10 and Luke 18. So it's in three of the four Gospels. Um, could be a reason for that. Charles just said, Josiah's clapping me. I can't. Oh, thanks, Josiah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So zoom in on this idea of uh, a camel going through the eye of a needle. Um, what on earth does that mean? Why on earth does Jesus say that? I found three different Explanations, um, the first of which is is quite obvious, really. Uh, Jesus says it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, unfortunately, I don't actually own a sewing kit or anything like that, so I don't actually own a needle. I'd love to be able to demonstrate a needle, but you can imagine a needle if you've ever done any sewing. I don't think I've done any since I was in primary school, but if you've ever done any sewing, you have a small needle and it's got an even smaller. Uh, hole in the top which is where obviously you try and pin thread now for me I find it difficult enough to even put thread through the eye of a needle you know you you lick it a hundred times you bend it in half you, you go down to one eye your hand you realize how much your hands shake when you're doing it and I find that difficult enough as it is so Jesus could have said it's easier to thread a needle than it is for a rich man and it would have made sense but Jesus doesn't say that he says it's easier for a camel to go through eye of a needle now obviously i don't i also don't own a camel um so i i can't demonstrate this even further but camels then i guess were pretty much the biggest animal that you would see if you lived around um israel and in the middle east the probably the biggest animal you would see is a camel they're bigger than a horse they're really big they've got those big old humps they're a funny shape as well which doesn't make it easy to fit anywhere i'd imagine um so that's That's number one is a, the enormity of a camel and the smallness of a, of the eye of a needle. It's difficult. Um, but other, other things I've found is the most disputed is that, um, actually the eye of the needle was a gate somewhere was a very narrow, small gate, um, which for a camel to get through, you'd have to unload it. It'd have to crawl on all fours. And again, it's a very, difficult laborious task um well that's the most disputed because there was never actually i don't think people have really found much evidence that such a gate existed but again it it could be a reason why jesus uses that that phrase um and the third reason i've found is that some people so this has been as early as the the early hundreds um in time so we're talking like 1500 1700 years Um, And some people have said that maybe it's a a simple spelling error. Now, this is quite controversial because obviously we don't like to think about the Bible as being wrong. Um, But some people might say that the Greek word kamelos was used for camel when actually perhaps it should have been kamelos. So just one letter difference, um, which means like cable or rope, which actually does make a bit of sense. It, It shows the same sort of idea that instead of using tiny thread, to go for a needle, you try and use a big old bit of rope. Which again, you're going to struggle either way the it, it stands the same and, and stands to mean the same thing that it's pretty tough. Um, and what I want to just zoom in on briefly on this is that the response of the disciples when Jesus says this, they say to him, they're astonished. They're astonished. And they say, who then can be saved? And I think there's a lot to go in here. And I want to say four things. You can't buy your way into the kingdom. You can't earn your way into the kingdom. You can't learn your way into the kingdom. And you can't luck your way into the kingdom. Because Jesus says, this is all impossible, but with God, it's possible. So on your own, it's impossible, but with God, it's possible. Um, So you can't buy your way in. Back then, the idea of what it meant to be blessed you know, you think of their culture and what they knew, you think of the, the peak, the golden era of Israel, is the times of King David, King Solomon, and they were blessed people. Solomon had so much wealth, so much wealth, so much stuff, uh, he was just loaded up with possessions, and, and that's what it means to be blessed. And we see that in John 9, we read this as a house church a few weeks ago. In John 9, they even talk about a blind man that Jesus heals as he's probably, you know, poor and disabled because he didn't live a good life because God's not blessing him. So, you know, you see in their culture, to be blessed was to have money, to have influence, to have power, and to be not blessed was to be poor, to be maybe disabled, to have some uh, medical problem, to be in pain. That's the, that's The the culture and has that culture really changed you know now we we talk you know on instagram i did a search yesterday hashtag blessed gets you about 123 million different posts and what do people post when they post hashtag blessed maybe it's the the car their daddy just bought them or maybe it's a nice new gucci watch or you know maybe it's yeah sunning yourself in Bali with a, you know, a margarita in one hand and uh, some lovely dress partner on the other, you know, that's, that's, has that changed? Um, You know, we, to be blessed in our culture now as well, I want to talk about, we're talking about wealth, money and wealth, to be wealthy in our culture is not just to have money, but it's to have social capital, social currency, how many followers do you have? How much? influence do you hold how many people can you get on side you know what's your army behind you wealth means more than that now as well um so yeah you can't buy your way into the kingdom Jesus is clear about that I heard um and Tim Keller has explained that really well so I won't dwell but um just one note is Josh Heather from Emmaus Road woke in shared a brilliant thing the other day when he said um you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. And even if you have lots of money and you give it away to all the best places in the world, you can still do it without love. You know, let's remember that. But you can't love without giving. So Jesus tells the story about the woman who gave two coins into the, into the altar and she gave more than anyone else because she gave and probably gave out of love, because why would you give so, what was so much to her if it wasn't for that? So you can't buy your way into the kingdom. You can't earn your way into the kingdom. Again, Tim Keller's really clear on this. You, know, you, can't, you can work as hard as you want. You can do all the things that you want, but you, it's, it's not enough. It's never going to be enough. You can't earn your way in. You can't work your way in, because actually, ultimately, you know, there is only one that is good as Jesus says, there's only one that is good. Why call me good? There's one that is good. And I just wanted to bring a Spurgeon quote that I've held to for a while. It's a real zinger, so strap yourself in. Um, and obviously, whenever we hear these things, we hear them knowing the love of God and the acceptance of God. And actually, it's not about us, but through God, all things are possible. This is a Spurgeon quote, it's going to hit you quite hard. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. I'm going to read that again. If any man or woman thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. You know, this quote, and Tim Keller talked it through as well, you know, this idea that under a microscope, we're all chipped. You know, we're all, we've all got holes in. Um, no, you know, no one knows the secrets that I hold in my heart you know, no one knows what I think about day to day. I'm not perfect. I'm worse than you all think I am. <laughs> so do not be angry with someone when they think ill of you for your worst you think to be. You can't earn your way in guys. You can work as hard as you want. You can do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, probably your motives will be skewed. You'll be influenced by culture. You'll be doing things for this world. You know, only one is good and that's God. And that's why we worship him and not each other. Um, So that was, you can't buy, you can't earn, you can't learn your way in. Uh, Tim Keller addresses that uh, the rich young ruler was looking at this as a, as an academic problem. I just need to tick that last box. I need to know everything I need to do and I'll be able to get in. You can't, can't learn your way in either. Um, And then the fourth one is you can't luck your way into the kingdom. I was watching on Netflix as we've all been watching telly guys. So on the, on Netflix, there's this great show. It's called, 100, 1 and 100, something like that. Anyways, they do all these experiments using 100 people. I'd really recommend it. It's really quite interesting and quite funny as well. Charles's not interested in it because I won't say why. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's really quite good. And um, they did this one where basically what I'm trying to say is luck. There's lots of things about our lives that are, uh, are just down to pure luck. Things like how, um, where we're born, what language you speak, even how good looking or not, we are. Um, and they did this experiment and it's, it's actually based on a study from 2010 that I've looked into a bit since, where basically better looking people, people with a higher physical attractiveness, got as, um, got as much as 22 months less on a, on a prison sentence than those who were worse looking who, with all the exact same evidence for the exact same crimes, but being better looking got you nearly two years less on your prison sentence you know so let's not be fooled guys (laughs) you know there's nothing we can do there's nothing we can do you didn't those people didn't earn just because they went to the gym a couple more times in their life to have a be a bit more toned and have a bit less you know flab around the edges you know that, that doesn't make them 22 months worth less in prison you know so you can't buy your way in you can't earn your way in You can't learn your way in and you can't luck your way in. Um, I also just wanted to say, uh, you know, I I did this image earlier, blessed and what it means to be blessed, Um, hashtag blessed. And obviously when, when Jesus came, and I want to turn to Luke 6 for this. We don't often read it in Luke. We often read it in Matthew, the Beatitudes. But who does Jesus say is blessed? Does he say the rich? Does he say the good looking? Does he say um, the people who speak English? Does he say the people who are white? You know, let's not be fooled about that either. Privilege exists, all sorts of privileges exists. I'm privileged because I'm white. I'm privileged because I'm a man. I'm privileged because I was born in England. I'm privileged because I speak English. I'm privileged because I was born to two parents who have degrees and are still together. You know, let's not be fooled about the privilege and luck that has landed in our laps. The wealth that we have, that is nothing to do with anything that we've done. But does Jesus say that? Blessed are the blonde, blessed are the blue eyed. No, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor. Now, we we'd often like to read it in Matthew because it says poor in spirit, but in Luke, it just says poor. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you. So, you know. Who does Jesus say is blessed? He's got it the other way around. Um, And Jesus doesn't value the things that we value. He often says his kingdom is not of this world, but we often build ourselves kingdoms that are. I think about the temple covered in gold, covered in precious stones. um, And notice it's covered in gold and precious stones because they're beautiful. It's not covered in 10 pound notes think of a story my dad's hilarious he says lots of funny things Um, and my mum likes pretty things including flowers she wanted to get lots of hanging baskets around their house and my dad said I'd rather hang 50 pound (laughs) notes God would rather hang flowers than 50 pound notes he doesn't value money in the same way that we do he doesn't value the things that we value his kingdom is not of this world but the thing the one that we build often is it's not possible to buy your way in, to earn your way in, to luck your way in, to learn your way in, but it is possible with God through grace. Scott and Emma,
1: over to you. Mine and Emma's job now is just to... We are muted. No, you're not. No, not
4: People can hear us yeah. Um, <clears throat> Um, yeah, my name's job was to kind of summarize and present some questions for discussion um i don't I don't think I can <laughs> summarize all of that uh thank you so much Rosemary, Tim, wherever you are, and christy um for those yeah wise words, challenging words um so i think yeah, I think I'll leave everyone to to ruminate over those things um but we have uh We've got a few questions mm-hmm. um, that we're going to use um, in a few minutes. Um, after we've shared the questions, Rob's going to break us up into uh, house churches so we can discuss these. Um, we can think about them. We can uh, wrestle with what we've heard, um, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully, really take on board some of this stuff. Um I was really conscious listening, um, listening to to Tim keller that uh yeah we we don't want to just find this uh find this interesting just for today
3: Mm. and then we
4: wake up tomorrow and forget um all that we've learned or we've heard forget the challenges that god might be presenting us um we really want to apply it um and make it stick and and really take uh god's uh god's word for us and god uh what what god is challenging us about Um, seriously um, and really, yeah, uh, really prize that. Um, So Emma's just gonna uh, share what questions Mm -hmm. we're going to be discussing in a bit.
1: I'll share these on the proximity um, WhatsApp in a moment but um, we've got four questions and I'll share them out in a moment but one thing we know is as we were, because we did what Christy did, we listened to the rich young ruler as well and when we were devising these questions they even made us examine how We view money within our our faith, within our lives, Um, not just money, but possessions as well. The questions we've got here are, one, what part of the passage or the talk made you most uncomfortable or challenged you the most and, and give reasons why? Number two, if you were the rich young ruler in the passage, what would Jesus ask you to give up? And again, why would that be? Number three, in what ways could you honor God more with your income, your money, and your possessions? And then finally, the fourth one, and I think this one probably challenged me more than anything else, actually. But have you considered sharing your finances with someone you trust, other than, of course, your spouse, or your partner? How would you feel about this? And why might it be difficult? Should we be more accountable with our income and our expenses? Um, I'll just share that on the proximity um, WhatsApp right now. But before we break off into our groups, um, Scott's just going to pray.
4: Um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll pray before we uh, um, split up and discuss these things. Um, Father God, thank you for uh, people who who study Your Word and listen uh, to Your voice and then share it with us. Um, I thank you for uh, Rosemary and Christy and and Tim, who have done that for us today. Um, Father, I pray that we would see, um, yeah, I pray that we would hear your voice to us today. Um, God, you will be speaking something different to each of us. Um, we will be challenged in unique ways um, from what we've heard. Um, and I pray that we would be challenged. I pray that we would not leave, uh, we would not be indifferent to your voice today. Um, and yeah yeah as 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 Christy said we are all um we all on a journey and we are none of us are perfect and you are always calling us to greater holiness and greater commitment um um, uh, and greater love for you Um, and i pray that we would uh be able to take a few steps um on that path today um father i pray that we would know jesus as sufficient jesus is our treasure Um, that we would know that you are all that we need um, and that uh,
1: uh,
4: yeah help us to to remember that and and to to follow Jesus in uh, in the way that he is leading us today Um, amen over to Rob to uh, send us on our way
3: Okay, guys, uh, we're going to break down into our house church groups and we won't be coming back. So wave at everybody that you're not going to see now. next.
1: Ciao. Bye bye.